Tonight's New Testament reading is from Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and it's on page 2 of your bulletin. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. I really want to talk to you tonight about the beauty of destiny's children. And by destiny's children, I mean all those who have come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to turn your attention to another passage of scripture that was not shared with you uh, this evening in our bulletin. It's from the book of Isaiah, again, chapter 62 and verses 1 through 5. Uh, Isaiah 62, 1 through 5. Our primary text is the text in Revelation, but it is important to hear these words of Scripture uh, as well. Listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 62 in the first five verses of that chapter. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we bless your name this evening and we thank you for your word that is alive and that is active and that is sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so, Lord, we can confess to you tonight that we are in this place naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account. And that's good news, Lord, because you know precisely then what we stand in need of. And so would you take these weak and unworthy efforts of mine in your word and use them to bless my hearers tonight? Meet us where we are and give us what we need, faith, Hope, encouragement, correction, joy, peace, whatever it is, that we might be people who live for the praise 
of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. According to bridalguide.com, the three most popular months in America to have a wedding are June, September, and October. And they say that this is because uh, the weather is most beautiful in early summer and spring. Now, I've performed, officiated a, a lot of weddings over the years of my time in ministry, and I have not necessarily found that to be the case. Uh, those wedding dates uh, that I've performed have been all over the calendar year, and I suspect that those wedding dates have been all over the calendar year uh, because the most important thing is not actually the wedding date, but the marriage itself. When my wife and I would take couples through pre-marriage counseling, we are careful to communicate and emphasize repeatedly that we're not simply trying to prepare the couple for a wedding day. We're trying to prepare them for long life together as husband and wife. It is so easy as you prepare for a wedding to become consumed with all of the details, trying to make sure that the day goes well and that everything is beautiful. And when you're consumed with all of these details, you can easily miss the whole point, which of course is your union together and the new home that's formed by that union. I always say to couples, the day is going to be beautiful no matter how imperfect it is. The day is going to be beautiful because of what's taking place. And most, if not all of us, have been to a wedding. We've been attenders, bridesmaids, and groomsmen, and, and uh, ushers, and flower girls, and, and ring bearers, and on and on. And when you are at a wedding, a number of things can go through your head. I know for me, my mind always goes back as I hear the couple take their vows. My own mind always goes back to, to the vows that I made and my desire to renew those and to continue living them out with my own wife. If you've never been married and you attend a wedding, you can experience a, a sense of, of longing as you uh, anticipate your, your, your own desires and the day in which you yourself will be married. If you were once married and are no longer married because of death or divorce, uh, while you might be happy for the newlywed couple, you, you, you may find weddings to be challenging. It can remind you of your loss and the accompanying pain or disappointment, and you can find yourself longing for relief from the reminder and remembrance of that loss or pain. And so whether your experience at weddings is delightful or difficult, or whether your marriage experience is mostly picturesque or mostly painful, it should amaze us. It should amaze us that when God wants to give us a picture of what heaven is like, the imagery he uses is of a wedding. Do you know what the destiny is of those who come to faith in God through Jesus Christ? 
picture the best marriage you can imagine and then multiply it by infinity. As Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond. When God wants to declare to his people what their destiny is, have in your mind the picture of a beautiful bride decked out and adorned for her husband in anticipation of life together with him. Understand that the Bible begins and ends with a, a wedding. We, we hear uh, in the first two chapters in the pinnacle of creation uh, 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 is man and, and woman and, and we hear Genesis 2 and 24 quoted at weddings all the time. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Well, those words were not just for repetition at weddings. They also set a trajectory forward in anticipation of the words that we heard from Revelation chapter 21. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem as she descended out of heaven from God after being prepared and adorned as a bride for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will be with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What does it mean to have this kind of destiny? What does it mean to be a destiny's children? Well, it means a guarantee of beauty. It means a guarantee of beauty, of personal beauty, of corporate and collective beauty, where nothing that is not beautiful will ever exist again. I know that that sounds like a fairy tale or a fantasy, but that is backed, that reality is backed by the full faith and credit of God himself. So I want to hone in on two things in this message. I want to talk about longing for beauty and living for beauty. Longing for beauty and living for beauty. Destiny's children, they live with longing for all things to be made beautiful. That is, of the longing for everything to be the way it ought to be. They have to become in this longing, however, comfortable that with the fact that as long as they're in this world, that they won't escape the reality of that longing for something more and something better. They, things are not the way they ought to be. The wedding is scheduled, but they don't know the date yet. Secondly, a destiny's children live together in the reality that the future promise of beauty has actually broken in on the here and now. That the future promise of beauty has broken in on this present world and as they are being prepared for life as it ought to be, they experience in reality a life of beauty today. Therefore, life now, right now, is not a hopeless venture they have eyes to see, to see that reversal and renewal and renovation and transformation is coming. John says in the first verse of 
that passage in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the former. Heaven and the former earth had passed away. Here towards the end of the last book of the Bible, what we are seeing with greater clarity is how God intends to satisfy the longings of his people. One of the questions that God's people ask him throughout the scriptures is how long? How long? How long, O Lord, David says in Psalm number 13, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I go on and take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, the martyrs, they cry out loudly with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long can you wait for things to be the way they ought to be? You know, words that repeat themselves over and over and over again in the book of Revelation coming from the mouth of John. Just read through it and you will find John saying over and over and over again, I saw this, I saw that, I heard this, and I heard that. The covers are pulled back for him so that with his own eyes he sees and with his own ears he hears the true reality. It's not that the things that you and I see and hear and perceive with our senses isn't true. It's that what our senses provide us is not the full picture. There's more to it. The Lord gives John and the church insight to what's going on behind what we are able to perceive. The curtains are pulled back and John sees a new heaven and a new earth. The former has passed away. The sea was no more. John is letting us know this is where the world is headed. This is the world's destiny. Not only that, John says, but I saw the holy city, the the new Jerusalem. I saw that too. I saw the city as she descended out of heaven from God after she was prepared and adorned as a bride for her husband. I didn't only see the destiny of the world. I saw the destiny of the people of God. And John wasn't the first to see it, and he wasn't the first to say it. The Lord declared it to Isaiah centuries before in the passage that I read at the beginning of this message. The Lord said to his people, Israel, they were in exile uh, and, and, and longing to be back to their homeland, longing to, for a return to, to the land of Palestine in the city of Jerusalem. And they needed a word from the Lord in the middle of their longing. And God sends Isaiah with a message, and he says to, to them, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. 
you shall no longer be called forsaken and your land will not be called desolate anymore, but you will be called my delight is in her. Why, Isaiah? Because the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Listen, here are these people in exile, busted and disgusted and broke down with no hope. And in the middle of that, the Lord says, you should be called by a new name that I'll give you. And that new name is going to be my delight is in her because I delight in you. In Isaiah's day, the people's longing was actually too short-sighted. They just wanted to go back to that patch of land in Palestine and the Lord had to say to them, your vision is too small, it's too short-sighted. I'm not just concerned with uh, some patch of land, I'm remaking the whole thing. And hundreds of years later, after Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world after he comes to save his people, giving up his life on the cross for their sake, being buried in the tomb and being raised on the third day in victory over death. After all of that, his people are still waiting. When is our resurrection? How long, O Lord? The one who sits on the throne has to reiterate, Behold, I am making all things new. Write it down, John. Write it down because these words are faithful and true. If we were to continue reading verse 6 of Revelation 21, that same voice speaks and it says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, we ache and we groan. We long for things to be better than they are. The compromising and idolatrous nature of humanity is that we try to fix our longings for beauty ourselves. We try to fix it on our own. Now, right, I... I'm holding out hope. I'm holding out hope, Pastor Glenn, for that beautiful, uh, aesthetically pleasing, athletic body. I batter my body with CrossFit. I try to eat right, paleo, do a whole 30 uh, once a year, trying. I keep telling people I'm trying to delay the decay. But what I really want is them washboard abs. Remember a few years ago, I had lost some weight and my youngest son looked at me with my shirt off and said, oh, dad, you have abs. And I was like, well, yeah, I've always had them. You just can't see them. The human mind has been able to discover and develop great medical advancements we put our minds to use through technology, attempting to make life better, to heal what's broken, whether that's bones or relationships. I'm glad that I can video conference with my cousin who lives in France. I can't afford to fly over there and see her all the time, but I can see her face whenever we can connect over the Internet. 
I'm glad that medical research continues to discover remedies and, and medicines that attack the diseases that attack our bodies. I'm glad that the creative genius of humanity strives to, to, to attain something better by making beautiful music and, and beautiful art. However, in all of our striving, in all of our longing, we cannot make things so beautiful, we cannot make them so radically new that there will be no more decay. Death, death is the great enemy, but it's not the great enemy that's defeated by modern medical technology. Death is a great enemy that is defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. John is declaring to to us that only God can do this. He is the source of beauty, so only he, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, only he can make all things beautiful in its time. Only God can make all things new. It's not the outcome of human scientific or technological advancement. As one commentator put it, describing this passage in Revelation 21, he says, the new city comes down out of heaven. Uh, The new city comes down out of heaven from God, a sheer miracle, a gift that is bestowed at the end of time, at the end of history, not the outcome of history. In other words, this beauty, this beautiful bride, the beauty that is described here, the beauty of the new creation, is not the outcome of human progress. It's a gift from God. That word in the text, behold, is not a call first and foremost to do something. It is a call first and foremost to observe and to see. Behold, I am making all things new. Watch and see. It is an invitation to look and to believe and to rejoice. God is committed to the beautiful renovation of his creation The word for new that is used in our passage typically indicates newness in terms of quality. In other words, through the victory of Jesus Christ over death, God is executing his renovation project. And this longing, this longing we have for our own beautification and the beautification of this world, it can actually weigh us down. It can weigh us down because try and try as we might, we cannot successfully cover our eyes at the ugliness. The beauty that we are longing for is not the airbrushed sheen of the fashion magazine trying to to hide the imperfections by glossing them over. It's not, if you will, putting lipstick on a pig. Fleming Rutledge, in her new book on Advent, puts it well. She writes, 
To grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. To grasp the the depth of our predicament, she says, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. And she says, entering into the very worst means giving serious consideration to the most hopeless situations. For instance, a facility for the most profound cases of developmental disability. What hope is there for a ward full of people who will never sit up, walk, speak, or feed themselves? Tourists go to the site of Auschwitz and take pictures. But who can imagine the smells and sounds of the most depraved of all situations? The tourists, she says, can turn away in relief and go to lunch. And I tell you something tonight. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are not tourists who turn away from the ugliness and go to lunch. We're people who live for beauty even as we long for it in the midst of the ugliness. In this life, when we get glimpses of eternal beauty, the paradox of it, the seeming, the contradiction of the presence of eternal beauty alongside the ugliness and deep depravity of this life, it can be a burden that's too heavy to bear. In a recent talk on the paradox of beauty, artist Makoto Fujimura described his becoming a, a Christian in this way. He was in Japan studying an old form of Japanese paintings called Nihanga, and he said that the way that Jesus led him to faith was by confronting him with beauty. It was through the extravagant crushed minerals he was using in his artwork, malachite and azurite and gold and silver and, and others, beautiful, extravagant minerals he was learning to use and was mastering. And he said, every day I sought higher transcendence through the extravagant materials. I found uh, success in expressions through Nahanga materials. And yet, he said, the weight of beauty I saw in the materials began to crush my own heart. I could not justify the use of extravagant materials if I found my heart unable to contain their glory. The presence of beauty now can be hard to bear because its glory can be too much. If we would look just a few verses later in Revelation chapter 21, would you listen as as John describes the weight of glory? He describes this beauty and this weight of glory, but he's not describing the weight and the beauty and the glory of God. He's describing the weight and the beauty and the glory of the city of God's people. He says in verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls of full of the last, uh, seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride 
the wife of the lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. If you keep reading, John is beside himself to give us a picture of how beautiful and how glorious the bride is. The walls of the city are built of jasper. The city itself, he says, is pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the city are adorned with every kind of rare jewel, jasper and sapphire and agate and emerald and onyx and on and on. It is a description of the eternal weight of glory of destiny's children. But here's the point. The point of John seeing for us and describing for us this eternal beauty isn't simply to make us long for the sweet by and by that's to come. It's even more to enable us to live for beauty in the nasty now and now of life. It's for us to feel that weight of beauty that Fujimura described and not be crushed by it as we refuse to turn our eyes away from the very worst of the human predicament. Destiny's children hold on. Destiny's children take their cues for living from what has been revealed by God. The churches to whom John was writing this book were in a fight. Understand, this book was written first primarily to the seven churches that are described in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and those churches were in a fight. They were suffering persecution. They were dealing with the ugliness of the reality of the human predicament. They were facing poverty. They were facing political oppression. They were facing the temptation to compromise their faith so that their life could be better and easier. They needed to know that God's promise that their destiny was to be with him as he remade everything was more certain than what their eyes were seeing and what their ears were hearing. And it's the same thing that we need to know. The people who have this destiny can live for beauty even as we long for it. You understand that because... Of who God is, he can declare, as I read in verse 6, it is done. Literally in the Greek text, that's a plural. It's literally, they are done. They are done. Not a singular it. In other words, everything, the Lord's saying, everything I said that was going to take place, everything that I promised, they're already done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the God of the beginning of history, the end of history, and everything in between. Let me close this by sharing with you two things that I think help us to live for beauty right now. First, first, in Jesus Christ, God has smiled on you. Do you belong to Jesus God delights over you. 
One facet of beauty is the fact that it delights, it's pleasurable, and God delights over his people. You are beautiful. In Christ, God looks at you and he's smiling. I know that you still have problems. I know that you still fight your temptations to sin. I know that you still wrestle with things that are not godly. I know you still have a worship issue, but God is still smiling. Esther Lightcap Meek in her book, Loving to Know, describes a, a, what she calls a sense of personal beauty. That is this sense that each one of us kind of needs. We need to know uh, that of ourselves. We need to know beauty, that, that, it, that it's ours, that, that, it, that it can describe us. And she says, a sense of personal beauty comes, I believe, only in the generous, self-giving gaze, the noticing regard of another person. I need, in other words, to have somebody looking at me and affirming the reality that I'm beautiful. And she says it this way. She says, a sense of personal beauty is accessible to all in the life-giving, noticing regard of Jesus Christ. If when human noticing regard fails to occur, if you don't get that affirmation, if it fails to occur, any person may nevertheless experience it in the gaze of the Lord. In the personal redemption and celebration of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, his alone, the Lord alone, is the face that will not go away. And his alone is our highest joy. His alone is the face that will not go away. His alone is the face that will never turn away from looking at you in loving delight. And the second thing is this, is that nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Here's what I mean. The loud voice from heaven says to John that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Those things will have passed away. But please know that today's tears, today's mourning, today's deaths, today's uh, cryings, today's pains are not wasted. They're not wanted, but they're not wasted either. Notice with me what John sees in verse 2 is the holy city descending out of heaven from God after it was prepared and adorned as a bride for her husband. These are passive verbs. In other words, the emphasis is that God is the one who has prepared and adorned the bride. She didn't do it herself. God, in this wedding, God is the one who picks out the wedding dress. God is the one who's the makeup artist. God is the one who's the hairstylist. God is even the limo driver. Because it says she came down out of heaven from God. He's doing all of the preparation. 
How did he prepare her for her wedding day? It was through the tears and through the mourning and through the crying and through the pain. Again, this is what these churches John was writing to needed to hear. God had equipped her to endure by faith as a part of her beautification. Jesus keeps saying to those churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, I will give, I will give, I will give, I will give. I know he's saying there's pain and sorrow and suffering and tears and mourning, but it's not wasted. This is part even of the preparation, as hard as it might be to hear, but this is what enables us to keep our eyes open and to live for beauty right now, following Jesus' lead. We live for beauty the same way our Savior did. It's interesting, as I close, do you remember how the Messiah is described in Isaiah chapter 53? In Isaiah's prophecy, when Isaiah said, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That God the Son who lived in eternal glory and beauty and communion and community with God the Father and God the Spirit came and took on our frailty and our vulnerability and our fragility and he came in human form as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible says he had no beauty that we should desire him. He came and he took it on to restore us to beauty, to restore us to beautiful, intimate communion communion with God and each other. And so this is what we do, secure in our beauty, secure in the fact that we, as the people of God, have the generous, loving, self-giving gaze of God always upon us. We see the darkness of our world, and we keep looking for beauty. We keep pointing out how this world, even though it is often filled with terror and tragedy, is still charged with the grandeur and the glory of God, and we keep working and pressing for beauty. Amen.